Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw. Welcome back to the Vibe Show. I am talking today with Dr. Felice Gersh. She is a medical doctor and I sought her out because she qualified in our Learn From Our Elders series. She's 65 years old and she's actually publishing her first book. She is an expert in women's hormone issues and she went back to school and did a fellowship and became double board certified shortly before she turned 60 years old. So she's perfect example of someone who is still learning, growing, very mentally sharp. You will find her very articulate in this interview. I am very excited to have her back for a second interview because we got to the end and I realized that I was so mesmerized by everything she was saying that I didn't ask her about part of her bio where she is a forensic expert in gynecological matters. And she's been involved in some very high profile, pretty famous cases. You'll recognize some of them. She's promised to come back on the show soon and talk about why an OBGYN takes the stand in high profile legal cases to testify about gynecological matters. Pretty interesting, right? So she really is a rock star doctor. She's been like top 5% of medical students. She's been the outstanding volunteer faculty for the OBGYN department at USC School of Medicine. She's been named a super doctor in Southern California. She's named in the top doc list. And so I'm really excited for you to hear this interview because I felt like it could have gone on for three hours and I would have been just completely mesmerized. So I think you're going to enjoy this. So welcome to the Vibe Show, Dr. Felice Gersh. Well, thank you so much, Robin, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to join you. I am really excited about this interview because it's remarkable when we find someone who's over 65 and still going hard, still contributing in a big way, which you are obviously doing. You have some really interesting things in your bio, including being a forensic OBGYN. I hope to get a minute on that. That'll be a little side tangent, but you're doing great work and you're a woman. So Of course, we love that around here because we are looking for role models. We are looking for who is rocking it still at 20 years past where I am. And I don't have a whole lot of role models, so I might just attach myself to your ankle. Let's just start at the high level. And then I want to dive into some of the things in your super fascinating introduction to yourself that you sent me. What have you learned in your life and in your medical practice that now at over the age of 65, you're welcome to share your age or not? What would you love to go back and tell your 35-year-old self? Well, I actually had the most amazing mentor who was my dad. I mean, my mom was fantastic, but my dad was sort of my mentor. And he lived to over 98. And he said to me, well, he gave me so much good advice, but he said, do what you love. The money will come along. Just find your passion and go for it. And don't look back, just keep moving forward. And that's how I I really have lived my life. I have many, many chapters in my life. And this is just another, and I hope I'll have more chapters and more interesting things. So I look at the timeline. It will just keep going and going as long as it will go. I'm just barely over the 65 mark. I'm 66. But um, I don't see that as 
hampering me in, in any way. And I went back and I actually had an interesting event happen. I was at a conference and I was with a bunch of naturopaths and I was the only MD in the audience. And one of the speakers was an MD and I went over to her and it was at a time when I was kind of lost trying to transition from a conventional practice into something else, but I wasn't quite sure what that something else was. And I said, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm really lost. I don't have any mentors myself. And she said, come and do the fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona School of Medicine. It starts in two weeks. So I ran home, I applied, and two weeks later I was in Tucson and I finished that fellowship in 2012. And that really opened the door to this wonderful new chapter. It sort of really helped seal the deal for me to, to keep moving forward and really looking back only to glean what I can in terms of what I've learned, but not to like lament or think, oh, I should have done something differently, but always to keep an eye on the future and really with the idea that I will do what I'm passionate about. And that's why I'm here with you, Robin, because I am passionate about talking about everything that has to do with women's health. Okay, that's pretty fascinating. I'm picking up on a different thing than you might've even intended was sharing that story, but I'm pretty sure what you just said is that you only became a functional medicine practitioner, kind of stepping outside of the ways of standard of care, you were getting close to 60 when you did that. And I think that's fascinating because you know how people will say, oh, I could go back to school, but then I'll be like 50 when I finish or I'll, or I'll be 60 when I finish. And I always think, well, you're going to be 50 anyway, right? Or you're going to be 60 anyway. Did you just tell me that you decided to go back for a fellowship and sort of reinvent your career be shortly before you turned 60. Right. I, I graduated from my fellowship and I became board certified in integrative medicine. I finished it when I was 60. That's right. And I was definitely probably the, the eldest one in my class. And I felt very much aligned with people who were 10, 20 years younger than me. And actually, that's what they always say. <clears throat> when you get older, make sure you have younger friends. Because if you think of yourself in the mind frame of a younger person. Not that I pretend that I'm your age because I know my age, but it's your mindset. In fact, they've even done studies where they took elderly people like in their 80s and they put them in an environment that was really an exact duplicate of the type of environment, like the kind of furnishings that they had in the house. They put the radio shows on from when it was in the 1930s. And over time, they monitored them over a month, they actually changed their markers, their blood markers, and they actually lowered their blood pressure. They actually became younger. So if you think of yourself in a certain age, rather than thinking of yourself as a conventional senior, then you can actually have the body of a younger person. So, you know, the mind is so powerful that you can control your aging by just how you view yourself. Fascinating. And that's, you're not the first person to tell us this very recently. I think it was our first learn from our elders uh, interview. We, we interviewed Mimi Kirk, who is around 80. And she told us that her, all her best friends are in their 30s and some of them in their 20s. And so here we have heard it again. I guess it's kind of like the you know, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I guess that applies to aging as well. Well, it certainly, it matters who you keep company with. We know that in both the good and the bad, they talk about from a health point of view, if you hang out with people who don't care about their health, who eat junk food, who never exercise, you will become one of them. So you really have to choose your friends very wisely because you are the company you keep. I love it. Well, one of the things I thought was super interesting about the background notes you gave me, you said, I understand that we humans are very much a part of the animal kingdom, though we often like to think that none of the laws of nature apply to us. Of course they do. 
The reality is that the prime directive of life is the creation of new life, the veritable circle of life. Some species procreate, they lay eggs and they die. Some get eaten by their mate after mating. And some, like humans, have a fairly long childhood, adolescence, and reproductive lifespan. And so we get to live far longer lives. So taking that thought, what do you have to say about women and hormones and aging? Because we want to live to be 200, perfectly healthy, still doing handstands, right? Or should we just give that idea up or what? Well, at this point, I'm certainly not realistically thinking about 200. I'm, I'm, I'm marketing myself for 100. But, you know, and of course, the optimal age that you live is going to be the optimal age that you're still healthy, right? That we call health span because living long without health span, just like you said, doing handstands, which I may not be doing, but something comparable is really where we want to be. We want to have that health span. And that's really one of the things that I do in the sort of age management portion of my practice, because I understand what nature is all about. And I don't care. That's the thing. I understand that nature doesn't really care about you or me as an individual. It cares about replacing us with new little humans and then having them do the same. So the bottom line is that menopause marks a massive metabolic change for women, and it's not for the better. And I don't believe in like living in a la-la land, you know, and pretend that it's the opening of a new chapter that's wonderful, that you lose your hormones from your ovaries and things get better. Unfortunately, we are really a product of our hormones. If you think about it, if you took a little boy and a little girl who are fraternal twins at age seven, and you did everything identically for them with the same classes and food and school and everything the same, and then you fast forward a dozen years and now they're 19, they're not going to look alike. It doesn't matter that they ate the same food and played the same games. They have different hormones and it's destiny. And when a woman loses her ovarian function, the organs that make estrogen, which is how children and men get estrogen, they don't pick up the slack like the brain. A woman's brain does not make as much estrogen as a male brain. A man's brain makes six to eight times as much. And after menopause, women's brains don't make more. They simply get less. And that's why women have almost three times the incidence of Alzheimer's disease as do males. And so what I do is I try to do everything to optimize this last often half of our lives where we can actually have that health span. And so I do believe in giving hormones, recognizing that it's completely concocted, it's completely against nature, which says after menopause, you've mastered or didn't your destiny for biology and had kids or didn't, but it's over, doesn't matter. You're done with that. And once you're done with reproduction, there is no grand plan for you. You just are set loose, you know, fend for yourself, like Survivor's Island or something. And so I don't have a problem. Nobody does in medicine. We have artificial joints, right? We remove cataracts. We do uh, implanted defibrillators. We do so many things that are certainly not natural. So why not be proactive and recognizing the vast metabolic roles that hormones play in women's bodies just replace them as best we can, as physiologically as we can. We're never going to actually be the same as a pair of viable 25-year-old ovaries, but at least we could be better. But then we get into the other part. So the way I look at it, 
being healthy is like putting together a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and the hormones are the center 400 pieces. But the other 600 pieces are the rim and that's your lifestyle, your diet, your exercise, your stress, your sleep, working with your circadian rhythm, all of that sort of thing. And, if, and that's where we start, right? When we put a puzzle together, a thousand piece puzzle, we always start with the rim, with the little straight edges. And so we have to start with lifestyle and nutrition is like the foundation. And then we put our puzzle together and then we can add in the hormones, recognizing that it's just one piece. It's not the whole, it's one piece of the puzzle that is to create our health span. Okay, so what I hear you saying, just to touch on the whole idea of replacing our hormones, and then I want to move on to the diet that you also just touched on. You like bioidentical hormones, but you want to be qualified about it and say, this is not going to make you perennially 25 years old. If you get your ovaries cut off, there's just only so much we can do, right? But it's going to give us healthier aging, but it's not, it's not the fountain of youth that we can live forever like we did when we were 25. Is that about right? You know, Robin, you hit it right on the head. That is absolutely true. And anyone who says otherwise is not being honest because we can't replace exactly what the ovaries do. The more we understand about what they do, the more we realize how complex it is. The hormones don't come out in a bolus in the morning and then maybe another bolus at night. Um, it doesn't come out at equal amounts all day long, seven days a week. There are pulses of hormones that come out more in the first half of the day and less in the later part of the day. And it also relates and interacts with the other hormones and also other things that are happening. So it's very dynamic. And when we give hormones, like if somebody has a patch, they're getting the same amount all the time. That is not physiologic. If you put on some cream and you put a blob on in the morning and then a blob on at night, that's not the way the ovaries do it. And if you have a, a pellet, which I don't do at all, I don't believe in pellets as being a, even close to physiologic, but you get this really high release in the beginning and then it starts degrading, but you never know at what rate. I mean, those are not anything like the way the ovaries make hormones. So we can try rhythmic hormones and that's actually an area that I am working with a group that's nonprofit that's a foundation that we're trying to raise money to actually do human research in Mexico where it's a lot more affordable to actually see how close can we come to trying to replicate the hormones of an ovary, but we know we're not gonna come that close. So we have to look elsewhere for the fountain of youth. We have to really be realistic and we have to try to keep as many of those puzzle pieces of our thousand piece puzzle together into the puzzle because it's not going to be just take the hormones and like you said, you'll be fabulous forever. Okay, so you touched on, you just mentioned a little bit about the circadian rhythm. And I know that you're really passionate about this. I think this is a fascinating area I'd love for you to cover. I was I was reading recently about how some more integrative doctors who do low dose chemotherapy, they don't do the full dose, um, they're willing to actually get paid less to do something that's more useful to a cancer patient. They've started to look at timing delivery of chemotherapy to the circadian rhythm. I thought that was pretty fascinating. So tell us how it applies to your work with women and hormones. Well, absolutely. It applies to everything. And you're right. It's a whole new world that they call chronotherapeutics, which is looking at the most optimal time of the day for whatever it is, surgery or pharmaceuticals and that sort of thing. And basically... Everything in our body is timed to the 24-hour rhythm of the day, of the rotation of Earth 
on its axis over the 24 hours and everything is timed and 90% of all the genes in our body are either clock genes or related to clock genes. So virtually every hormone, like there's actually, there's a 24 hour clock of insulin and testosterone and, and estrogen. And, you know, of course, everyone knows there's a circadian rhythm of cortisol. That's the one that people know the best, that you have the peak of cortisol in the morning when you wake up, and it should be lowest during the night, and that's when the melatonin rises. And people know the melatonin circadian rhythm, but everything is on a rhythm, and it's all designed for survival. And once again, survival for the purpose of successful reproduction. When I was doing thousands of deliveries, I did not understand anything about the circadian rhythm at that time. In fact, they hadn't even discovered clock genes or anything. We didn't know anything about it. And I kept wondering, why is it that all these patients of mine are going into labor during the night, and then I have to go in at the early morning hours and deliver them? It's like, I thought that was a wise tale, but it's actually my life, which is one of the reasons why after 25 years, I had to give it up. It was literally killing me. And now, of course, I understand because women are programmed to go into labor during the night when everything is natural because that's the safest time because under the cloak of darkness, they're more protected from the wild beasts you know, of 25,000 years ago than if they were laboring in the middle of the day when the wild animals and other, other humans are up and about and maybe harm them. And that when they deliver in the early morning, when the sun rises, they can go to a more safe place and seek shelter where they can actually maybe protect themselves and their new baby. So everything that about us is designed for maximal survival, and that includes every rhythm of our body. And of course, what have we done in our society? We've ignored that. So we have one third of the population working at odd hours during the night. Of course, I was one of those people for many, many decades. And then we have people eating at odd times. Now we have all this new information about time-restricted eating. It's not just what you eat, which really matters, but it's also when you eat it. It's when you do everything. So you have to recognize, once again, that we're part of the animal kingdom. And if you take an animal that's supposed to be up at night, and then you try to flip its circadian rhythm, it's not going to be healthy. And the same for humans. Yeah, you know, I go to Switzerland for three weeks every summer. And this last time I decided to really flood my body with a few different uh, probiotic supplements that I trust, because I had the sense that if I could navigate um, jet lag better, if I did that, I had I had read that as a theory, and I did it and I had absolutely no jet lag on either end. What, what do you think about that? Because I know you're, a, you're an expert on these kinds of connections of the gut and the hormone system and the female reproductive system. What, what do you think that's about, that having healthy uh, probiotics as supplements when you travel and change big time zones like that? Why, why was that useful? Well, it's so interesting. The, the gut microbiome, they're living cells as well. So if we think of the microbes, they also, like every living creature on this earth, they have their own clock genes as well. And there's actually differences in the microbes at different times of the day and night. And there are certain microbes that actually respond to melatonin and swarm, just like insect swarm. And they actually then communicate through their production of short-chain fatty acids to them, the other microbes. So I'm sure that what you were doing by taking the probiotics and the way that you were timing them is that you were helping to maintain the circadian rhythm of your microbes inside of you. 
by helping them to stay healthy and properly timed. So that's one of the very interesting things that's happening when you give your gut some rest. Like maybe you weren't eating for a while. One of the things that I do when I travel, because I do a lot of traveling and speaking, is I try to fast the day before I take a very long transcontinental trip. And then once I get on the plane, I try to go instantly into the time zone that I'm going to be in to try to help my micros. Because if you stop eating for a while, it's sort of like a gut reboot. But I think that when you were taking the probiotics, you were actually helping to support. It was kind of like you put your microbes on life support and they were they were actually helping helping them to ride out the time change. Interesting. I wonder if you can we can go back to talking about bioidentical hormones. Do you think that there will be a breakthrough? Because I don't think that the transdermal pellets are a good idea. People get infected. We don't know what they're doing there under the skin. I think it's terrible. Well, I'm so glad you agree. Yeah, I've just, I mean, everybody on a personal level I've known who have done that, usually for testosterone more than estrogen, but you're saying that that's a way to deliver estrogen. So I'm not a big fan of that. Do you think there's going to be a breakthrough to at least mimic nature better for release of bioidentical hormones? Well, I don't think it's happening really soon. And that's really sad because there is so little interest in the conventional medical world. In fact, even though there's tons of literature in the basic science research showing all the functions, all the benefits that hormones do in the body. I mean, I have a lecture on every single function in the body and how it correlates with estrogen. It's like, because estrogen has receptors in every organ everywhere. So of course it has its finger in everything. The problem is even though the data is there, the clinical world has not embraced this at all. So it's going to happen. I just don't know when because, and that's part of my mission is to educate people to stop vilifying our hormones. You know, they didn't come into our bodies to injure us. They're there to maintain our health. And that's why after women hit menopause, they have dramatic declines in their health. I mean, by the time the average woman reaches the age of 75, there's an 85% chance that she'll be hypertensive. And women outdo men for strokes dementia, as I mentioned, they have equal amounts of heart attacks. I mean, women have more osteoporosis and osteoarthritis than men. After menopause, they have much more onset of rheumatoid arthritis. It's, and they have a lot of gut problems. And of course, breast cancer dramatically rises when they lose their estrogen. That's why postmenopausal breast cancer is far exceeds premenopausal breast cancer. And colon cancer really starts to escalate. All these problems happen after menopause, and it's not a coincidence. It's not the age of the woman. It's the loss of the hormones of the woman. So absolutely, we have to get, if we're going to start really thinking about being proactive for women's health and men's health too, we really have to start figuring out better ways of delivering hormones that are in line with our rhythms. Women not only have circadian rhythms, of course, they have the beautiful lunar rhythm. And there's all whole lectures I give on what happens in a menstrual cycle at different phases and how that correlates with different other parts of the body. And of course it does. It's not just about the uterus, it's about the breasts, for example, when women have a normal menstrual cycle and they have their period, there's actually data that show that abnormal cells, probably you know, incipient even breast cancer cells, actually kill themselves and die in the breast when the uterine lining is, is sloughing. So nature took its own 
care to prevent creating breast cancer. We have all these fail-safe mechanisms. The problem is if you don't have a real rhythm, if you don't have the peaks and troughs and so on, the, the ebb and flow of the hormones, you actually don't put into play any of these beautiful functions of the body. It's kind of like that we eat all the time and now we know that we have to do some intermittent fasting or periodic fasting to actually give our bodies a chance to rejuvenate. You don't go into the rejuvenating state unless you stop eating. So we now we've learned a lot. Now we actually have to start getting the mainstream doctors to really embrace this and then get the researchers to create a clinical way of, of using the hormones to manifest like the way the ovaries manifest with us. And that's not happening, not yet. Okay, so interesting. You're talking about the ebb and flow and that our you know prescriptions for bioidentical hormone then should ideally create that highs and lows of the hormones, which is, makes it even that much more complex to get it right. My girlfriend up here in Park City, Utah, where I live, um, Dr. Trevor Cates told me that she trained under the Jonathan Wright method. And when she was in practice, would have people go off their progesterone and go off their estrogen, go off, maybe even go off their thyroid for a few days each month. And I'm curious what you have to say about that, because I've had six different practitioners since I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's about 17 years ago, and I'm totally in remission. I never even have any antibodies show up in my annual testing. And that's largely due to bioidentical hormone and being pretty darn clean with my eating habits. So I wonder, should I be going off of hormones for a few days every month? Well, I understand the motivation behind that. And its intent is very good because the people, I guess it was Jonathan Wright, who's saying, well, in nature, you don't have incessant hormones at the same level. That's not physiologic. And I'm, I'm a big one to say nature is really complex. The more you learn about how cells work, the more complex you understand them to be. And the more you realize that we are not nearly smart enough to micromanage a cell. It's not going to happen. And all you end up is with lots of side effects like pharmaceuticals. And the same thing with hormones. We can't really micromanage hormone receptors. We have to try to give the body the way it's hormones, the way they're physiologically designed to receive them. So this idea that you'll take a break, I mean, I understand because they're trying to be a little more physiologic, but that's still not being physiologic because there's never a time in a woman's menstrual cycle. If we figure a 25-year-old who's healthy and cycling, there's never a time during her cycle that she simply has no hormones being produced. It doesn't drop to zero. It, it's a, it doesn't do that. So, and it's not like it's the same, it's the same, it's the same for three weeks and then suddenly it disappears for three days. So I understand the intent is good, but the reality is that that's not even close to being physiologic. So what we, and, and the idea with that is that, well, you're going to reboot your receptors. If you give the, the receptors a time when they don't have exposure to the hormones, they'll suddenly reboot. And this is all theoretical. There's no data to support any of this, but nevertheless, it's, it's a good intent but it's certainly not physiologic. So my, my wish and my goal, and that's where I'm trying to work with raising money to create research because nobody is ever in the conventional medical world going to accept anything unless there's at least some study to show it. That's just where it is. It's science and theory just won't, won't hold it you know, together for them. So I, we have to have some studies and we're going to try to create protocols where, and it's, it's somewhat similar, but hopefully more sophisticated than what people have produced and recommended or suggested in the past to try to mimic the rhythm of a normal menstrual cycle. 
but like you said, it's really complex because even like when we put cream or hormone cream on somebody's skin, even for that same person, how can we think that they're going to absorb exactly the same amount, even from the same dose every day? Because, you know, talk about concocted, the skin of our bodies was never evolved to be a hormone delivery system. We just do it because fortunately things can absorb through the skin, but the temperature of the skin, the time of day, the blood flow, how hard you rub, all these different things can actually change even for the same person, how they absorb it. So you know what, we're just making do. We're trying to do the best we can. The best thing would be something that doesn't exist. And that would be like, like the way people have an insulin pump, we would have an estrogen progesterone pump, you know, where we can actually have it pulse through the day and have different amounts and give what the body needs. But we are so far from something like that. And, you know, we need researchers and they have to see some money to be made because, you know, money is always what drives these kinds of inventions, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. And there's not a lot of money to be made in giving bioidentical hormones because you can't patent it. So it's really a challenge, but I'm not giving up because I know that we can do better. What we're doing now is better than nothing, but it's certainly not where we should be. Absolutely agree. And you've said a lot there. I've, there's so many things that I want to ask you. Um, but really quickly, I, I don't think this is super self-indulgent because while I'm asking this for a dear friend of mine, um, I think there are lots of women who have this question. We certainly get asked this quite often, but there are so many women now who have had their hormones in misfire for so many years, so many even decades, that they have things like fibroids and gosh, I can't think of the name of it right now, but all the all the fibroids covering the whole inside of their uterus and literally gluing organs together. Oh, like endometriosis? Thank you. That's it. I had it two minutes before I asked you the question. And then yes, thank you. I knew you'd supply that. Um, my dear friend, she's 45. She looks healthy. She's active, but she has had um, endometriosis for many, many years. They tried to go in and scrape. They couldn't. They couldn't get into the uterus, very small. And so obviously I'm not using her name because I'm giving some personal details here. But the reason I ask is that there's so many women being prescribed hysterectomies and you and I understand the ramifications of losing your ovaries and losing your ability to produce hormones. But do you think for people like my friend where every doctor has said, you're kind of at the end of the line here, we just want to take it all. Do you have any hope to offer her that isn't surgical? Do you think that there's a time and a place for hysterectomy? Do you feel like we're performing too many hysterectomies? What would you tell women with endometriosis, fibroids, and the like? Well, even the American College of OBGYN has come out in the past saying 70% of hysterectomies are not warranted. So I'm sure there are way too many hysterectomies for sure. And in terms of any disease, when we're talking about uterine fibroids or endometriosis, for myself as a treating physician, it's far easier for me to do good the earlier I see them, of course, in the course of their disease progression. So if somebody came into me and they had uterine fibroids the size of a nine-month pregnancy, I can't make that go away. I mean, it's like I don't have that power. Now, can I make things a little better? I can certainly do that. But you know, for someone that comes in with a gigantic uterus like that, we're kind of stuck. They, they probably are the, the case where a hysterectomy is warranted. For someone with endometriosis, I really like to try everything first because generally speaking, it's often going to involve their ovaries as well to be removed. And that is, like you mentioned, it's really tragic when you lose your ovaries. 
and the hormones are never replaced. We just were talking about it to be really physiologic. There's, and they usually replace the hormones of a woman who has her ovaries removed at say 32. They replace the hormones the, as if she were 62. You know, so they're not giving her physiologic levels of hormones, not just even the rhythm of how they're dosing it. They're not, she's not getting levels that are typically comparable of a level that her age group should have. So there's so many problems. Whereas with fibroids, you can, generally speaking, you don't have to take out the ovaries, although we now know that taking out the uterus does compromise the blood flow and the function and can set women into earlier menopause. So we certainly do not want even hysterectomies that we can avoid. For endometriosis, we now know it's a very complex condition that is involving endocrine disruptors. It's really probably in women who are genetically predisposed and they've been exposed to endocrine disruptors at key developmental times, like in early childhood, at puberty, and also in utero when their estrogen and progesterone receptors are being formed. We now know that most women with endometriosis have malfunctioning progesterone receptors, which is why pouring progesterone into them has little effect in many, many women. Some of them, you can override it, just like you can override receptor resistance for insulin and even thyroid if you give enough of it. So sometimes by pouring in enough progesterone, you can override that receptor resistance. But you have a completely out of control immune system because there's also estrogen receptor malfunction. And estrogen is really the master of the immune system. For example, we now know that endometriosis is often triggered by explosions of mast cells that release their inflammatory contents, all the inflammatory cystokines, like for example, the cytokines, like a tumor necrosis factor alpha, and the histamine is in there. And they also release the chemokines that call in the other troops, the other inflammatory cells, and it creates inflammatory chaos in the pelvis of these women. And the way the estrogen should work is that they should create the enzymes of these immune cells, like the matrix metalloproteinases, to actually dissolve the backwash of uterine cells that come out and flow backwards through the fallopian tubes into the pelvic cavity, those uterine cells should be dissolved by the enzymes of these immune cells. Instead, these immune cells are misdirected and they're dissolving little holes in the peritoneum and in the ovaries and the backside of the uterus into the actual pelvic cavity. And then the lining cells, instead of being dissolved, are actually implanting. They're creating like little nests for them. And estrogen, which is all about healing and creating new blood supply and, and you know, healing damaged tissue is actually inadvertently supplying blood flow. New blood vessels are growing to these endometriosis implants and the estrogen is nourishing it. So it's estrogen is supposed to be helping damage tissue and nourishes and it helps proliferate and grow new tissue. And it's all being subverted in a very abnormal way to support this inappropriate growth of uterine lining tissue, the endometrial tissue in the pelvis. So, and then the progesterone, which should sort of come to the rescue and down sort of down the inflammation of all of this, it doesn't work because the receptors are not working properly. So what can you do? Well, it turns out that because this, this women are in a massive state of oxidative stress in their pelvis, if you give them really high quantities of polyphenols and antioxidants in their diets, you can see dramatic reductions in their pain. There's actually studies showing that, for example, vitamin C that you can get from foods 
and vitamin E, these, all these antioxidants, green tea, ECGC, and drinking and having concentrates of green tea can actually, and you have to be careful with green tea, always take it with food, but you can actually downregulate a lot of this inflammatory process. Also, if you do a fasting mimicking diet, they've shown that that also significantly lowers inflammation because these women are like on fire in their pelvis. So before doing something like a hysterectomy for your friend, I would really put her on a diet that was 12 cups of varied vegetables and fruits a day. I would give her lots of antioxidants, probably IV with some antioxidants, the B complex, vitamin C. And I would put her on a program of stress reduction because the brain actually modulates the immune system. You can actually train the brain to actually sort of down-regulate the immune system and sort of make things less on fire. So there's a lot that can be done. And maybe with any luck, she can avoid that hysterectomy. Okay, because I think this is kind of her last her last um, hurrah here before she goes to hysterectomy. So I'm really excited to share this episode with her. And you mentioned fasting mimicking diet. And I noticed in your notes, I think that we are probably both uh, students of the Longevity Institute at USC and Dr. Walter Longo, who's been a guest on this podcast, it sounds like we share in common that we restrict the amount of time that we eat. It's being popularly called uh, time-restricted eating. I think it's silly when people say intermittent fasting because stopping eating at dinner and starting eating at breakfast isn't isn't fasting, but I too have done four long fasts in the last two years. And I see that you've done fasting 13 times because you're 65. And I see that I'm going to read the paragraph you wrote me about sort of your take on nutrition. This is Dr. Gersh boiled down to one paragraph. Here's what she says. And then I, and then I want to ask you about being 65 and doing fasting. Um, I know that you're very precise about wanting to make sure that people 65 plus get enough protein and don't lose muscle mass. But here's what Dr. Gersh said to me, I'm a huge plant advocate and also I'm for fermented foods, organic soy and other phytoestrogens, whole organic grains, nuts and seeds. For women over 65, I recommend some healthy animal foods each day as once in that age category becoming frail due to sarcopenia and osteoporosis is a grim reality. And I'm hearing this from more and more 65 plus folks and the physicians who treat them, even if they're heavily in favor of the plant-based diet. Um, That's been my diet for 25 years now. And we just interviewed Dr. Brian Clement, who's been a 100% vegan for 45 years, and he's healthy at 70. So is his wife, same diet. But you say body composition testing is important to check once you become a senior. We don't want to lose lean body mass. So do you lose lean body mass when you are fasting? Tell me about your fasts, how long you fast and how you protect against that. Well, I don't and I I do watch it. And I do the uh, fasting mimicking diet, the prolon that Professor Longo developed it with his team over at the Longevity Institute. It's really near and dear to my heart, his research. They actually put their own little caveats on it as far as, as, far as people go when they're over 65, because it's not tested in that age group, and they do not promote it for that age group. But as an individual doctor, I can do whatever I want. I just watch my own patients, and I make sure that their body mass is such that they're not too lean to begin with. That's not my problem. I'm not, I'm okay, but I'm not too lean. 
that I have, uh, I have enough body fat to burn. And I watch it because I don't want to, and I can't afford, none of us can, to lose our muscle mass or our neural tissue or bone, certainly. But um, because I myself am on hormones, and I, that's one of the things that I, I want to discuss with Professor Longo is doing some studies in menopausal women, both on and not on hormones, and also what levels do they have, you know, make it to see if they're having physiological levels of estrogen in their blood or whatever means that we do to measure it. Because estrogen is very important, obviously, for maintaining muscle. We know that there are receptors and bone. Most people know about bone, but it's also very important for muscle. So I think a lot of the worry that has come about for the fasting, using fasting mimicking diets in people over 65 or based predominantly on people not having any hormones as far as any kind of hormone replacement therapy at that age. I found in my own patient population is that women who are on physiologic levels of hormones do well. I mean, I haven't done it in 80-year-olds, I'm being honest. I, I'm, I'm still very cautious. I, I'm not doing fasting in 80-year-olds. I do some time-restricted eating, but I, I'm not going to get into that age group and start experimenting. But in healthy people in their 60s or even early 70s who have very significant amounts of body mass already, and they, they're not frail, then, and I watch them, we get body compositions, they can then benefit, they can still get the benefits of a fasting mimicking diet and not have any of the negatives. So I've done very well, but I'm very cautious and I do recognize that it's not been well tested in that age group. Yeah, I'm really paying close attention to all the evidence that comes out, not just about fasting, which I think Dr. Longo's right that probably there are people who really can't handle that. People who are significantly overweight actually do really pretty well because they've got a plenty of uh, body fat for their body to feast on. I struggle with fasting. In fact, I have to go away. I have to go away and I've fasted for between one week and two weeks, four times. I think that the track record of fasting is just, you know, inarguable, um, but people are really toxic these days. And when you fast, you're going to start you know, flooding out a lot of toxicity. And so I'm no longer going to go to this ashram in Texas. I've gone to four times because they don't have a sauna. I have an infrared sauna here at my house, but I just don't have the tools there. And and so I wouldn't send somebody to the ashram to fast. But I, I think it's really interesting that the information that's coming out of uh, Longo's Longevity Institute that we can eat six to 800 calories a day. His Prolon program, I don't want to be a critic because I understand what he's trying to do, but I, it's all packaged stuff. And when I'm getting six to 800 calories a day, I think you can get some of the same benefits, but I would rather, you know, steam some asparagus and eat it or eat and eat a nectarine or whatever, but it's definitely very done for you. It's very expensive. Um, it's not organic. So it's probably their first, you know, coming to, to market with their first product. But I think that the evidence is really exciting what's coming out. And so I'm, I was pretty fascinated that at 65, you're fasting because you know the risks there. Yeah. And I am doing, well, the thing with the fasting mimicking diet is I know it's on their side uh, in terms of it's not all certified organic, but it is coming from organic sources. But you have to be careful if you make up your own fasting mimicking diet, so to speak, by keeping the calories in that same calorie range most likely you'll end up having a low calorie diet because you know they've created it over 20 years to be such that it can fly under the nutrient sensor detector so i call it stealth food because it you eat but it's not detected so you can play around with other foods in that same calorie range but you really won't know if you're actually 
eating a low calorie diet or you're actually getting the benefits of fasting, which are actually quite different because when you have the true fasting, you actually trigger uh, programmed cell suicide and stem cell stimulation and autophagy where the cells re rejuvenate themselves from within and so forth. But you get, you get the low calorie. But I, you're, better, you're better than me, Robin. I have never gone even more than 24 hours of a true water fast. That's why I do the fasting mimicking diet because I can't do it. So, and most of my patients are not that, um, I guess, capable either because we, we get too um, sad, I guess. We just miss our food and we start eating. So that's the one thing about when you do a fasting mimicking diet for people like me who just can't seem to go more than one day with no food at all, um, it gives us a, a viable option. But um, uh, you know, I definitely recommend, as you mentioned, like a far infrared sauna. I have one in my office and I have one in my home and I really think they're wonderful and I'm glad that you're using it. I think that fasting is not for everybody. I think fasting for a week or two, I just want to say I'm not Hercules here. I have to go away because if I were at home, I literally just don't have the self-discipline. I would like get in my car and just lose it and go. I feel better because I'm thinking, wow, you are far better than I, Robin. I can't do it. So you have to be locked away. Maybe I could do it if I was locked away too. Yeah, exactly. This place in Texas is two hours from the Dallas airport. And when you get there, you actually, you cannot use your Lyft or your Uber apps. So it doesn't matter how desperate I got to go get some food. I would have to get a car company and it takes 24 hours to get them there. And so I can't have a freak out and go walk someplace. It's very rural. You know, I've thought about going to True North because I think they do a really good job of supporting people while water fasting. But the reason I don't is because I know it's in California and I know I could walk across the street and get some food. So that's not going <laughs> to that's not going to deal with my problem, which is the lack of self-discipline. But, you know, my my friend Katie, who runs Wellness Mama, one of the biggest sites on the Internet, she does it for like two weeks while taking care of her six kids and homeschooling them and cooking them three meals a day while her husband's out of town. So there's I don't know if there's just people with... I think she's saving that time. <laughs> she has no time to eat. I don't know how she's doing it. Well, she probably is keeping her mind off of it pretty well. I really have been completely fascinated by this whole conversation. And I wish we could just go on for round two. But you said a really interesting thing I just wanted to touch on before we ask you how people can learn more about you. I know you have either just come out with or about to come out with your first book. And again, just kudos to you that you are, you know, when a lot of people are thinking about retirement, you're bringing great work out there in the world. But I would love to know what this is about. You said that you love tea, you love organic dates, which you say are an underappreciated and much maligned superfood and organic hot air popcorn. And you said it's a great source of fiber plus nutrients. You said this combo combats the malady of so many seniors. And I know it's not just the malady of seniors, it's juniors too, kids and teenagers and young adults. They're all constipated. Tell us about those three foods and why those are great for constipation. Well, the teas are great for so many reasons, but for the constipation, it's primarily for hydration. But um, I love all of this, so many different types of teas. I have so many ones, you know, I love variety. So you can experiment, try some of the herbals, green tea, of course, and then black tea is excellent too. And I like Earl Grey. So, and try to get, of course, organic tea because like every food product, it's grown with something bad on it if you don't get organic. So try to do that. But so you get the hydration from the tea. The dates. Now, I really got into dates because the last couple of years, I did a whole two-day women's 
education program in Dubai. And then the last time I was in Dubai, which was a few months ago, I then went and I did some speaking in Oman. And I toured around in Oman. And the whole culture there was based on dates. They had a date society. So they used every bit of a date, the date palm tree, the leaves, the, you know, the, the bark, the, of course, the date itself, they would crush, they'd make into liquid, they would use the seeds, they would use, and they would send people out into the Persian Gulf and they would have baskets of these beautiful dates and they would live on them for three weeks while they did their fishing. Then they would come back and then, man, they were fine. They were fine. And they, all they lived on were dates. So I started thinking, what's with these dates? I mean, this whole, com this whole society lived on dates. And they had these beautiful date markets. And I tried all these different kinds of dates. So I became a date aficionado of sorts. And from then, I've just been eating dates on a very regular basis. And I've looked up the value of dates. They're full of polyphenols, antioxidants, and amazing fiber. And they, a lot of people think, oh, if you eat dates, you're going to get diabetes. And that is really not the case. And the people in the Middle East who, like in Oman, they were not diabetic. Now there's a lot of diabetics there because they're eating American food. But they lived very good lives. And so the dates are amazing. And so I researched it, and they're great for constipation. They're better than prunes, and they're delicious. And they have so much health benefit. And then hot air organic. It has to be organic. So corn, which has also been like all these foods are maligned. Dates are maligned, just like estrogen. I'm here to defend the defenseless. So corn. Now, if you have crappy GMO-grown corn, of course, that's a terrible food. But if you get organic corn and you hot air pop it, it has no oxidized oils on it, nothing like that. And it's an amazing source of fiber. It also has nutrients in it too, but just from a fiber source. When you combine eating hot air popcorn with some, so if you have like six dates and you have a small bowl, it's like one sort of scooper of the dried popcorn and then we pop it. So it's like one nice bowl. And then you have a few cups of tea, your GI tract is going to be great. I'm telling you, I use this with all my patients. I'm finding amazing results. And, um, and it's like wonderful food. Wow. I, th I feel like maybe your second book could be the date diet or something like that. It could be, you know, it, I'll tell you, you go to Oman and then you can't leave and not love dates. Yeah. I'm feeling pretty good about the four dates that are in my breakfast every morning. And I don't know, maybe that's why I've never. Hey, Robin, I didn't know you were already another date lover. I'm a date lover, although I blend mine into this pretty famous smoothie that I've taught people for many years. Well, you can eat it different ways. Remember, that's yeah. what they, I told you, they did everything under the sun that you could do with a date. They did it. Yeah. Mine is blended with cashews, beets, carrots, strawberries, and fermented coconut water, which I teach people all the time. But anyways, maybe that's why I've never had constipation. Who knows? I did not know that. Well, you've got plenty of hydration going there too. Okay. So I think your next book should be those three things. You just have to organize them into an acronym and make it the whatever dot diet or whatever it is. So Dr. Gersh, tell us about your book coming out or has it released and, and where people who want to follow you and learn more from you can find you. Sure. So my book, which hopefully will be a, available for a pre-sale in then maybe a month. So it's called PCOS, SOS, and then it has a little subtitle, A Gynecologist's Lifeline to Naturally Restore Your Rhythms, Hormones, and Happiness. And it's a whole new take and a new understanding on the most common endocrine disorder of women, which is PCOS. And so hopefully we can make some 
some advances there and help women who traditionally are treated by the conventional world with birth control pills, which have a lot of problems associated with it, and spironolactone, which is a terrible teratogen, and metformin, which is a recognized endocrine disruptor. So there's a lot of issues with our current treatments, and of course, none of them get to the underlying root causes. So that will be out soon, and you can go to my website, which is very easy. It has my middle initial in it, though. That's the only trick. It's FeliceLGershMD.com. That's Felice, F-E-L-I-C-E. What's your middle initial? L-G-E-R-S-H. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. You've shared so much information that's really useful to me personally, and I hope to my audience as well. And so thank you so very much for being with us today. It's been all my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Robin. 